because you're jumping back into the gut. All right. Hey, Coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Excited today to welcome David Thorpe to the podcast. David Thorpe is a renowned coach, analyst, mentor, and writer throughout the NBA with over 20 years of experience. He was an ESPN analyst for 10 years and also wrote a book called Basketball's Jazz, Stories and Lessons from a Basketball Lifer. He now writes an NBA blog on truehoops.com about all things NBA. He's also worked with top NBA talents throughout the league, coaching them through skills training. Uh, last I checked, Coach, 80-plus NBA players, All-Stars, lottery picks, and Olympic captains. That's pretty good, and that's all through the Pro Training Center and all the work that he's done through the years. Coach, honored to have you on the podcast. Ah, appreciate being here. It's always good to talk to people that are more like me than the average uh, basketball fan. So thanks for having me. Well, we, we align with a lot of things, and I'm excited to get into one of the topics, which is uh, this concept of recruiting great kids with potential or selecting. It doesn't have to be necessarily recruiting at certain levels, but selecting great kids with potential and then developing them. And it seems like, Coach, the part that a lot of people miss is that we can develop them, right? I mean, that's what I've been doing my whole career on. You know, I've been writing about this and talking about this for a long time. Uh, but I would tell you that I recently read a book called The MVP Machine. A really phenomenal writer, The New Yorker, uh, named Louisa Thomas, sent it to me. And she said, when I read this book, I heard your voice in my head because it's the kind of stuff you always talk about. And it's a baseball book. It has nothing to do with basketball. I don't think our sports ever mentioned once. But it's, and when you read it, you realize the Major League Baseball is a decade ahead of the NBA and, and our sport in general in terms of understanding not just how to develop players, and I, I don't mean just pitchers, but hitters too, uh, but, but in, uh, in terms of how to value development. That's what we're so far behind. So, no, 25 years to college coaches who will check in with me more so years ago than now because I don't pay as much attention locally to high school kids now. They want to know about this player, that player that are so-called high majors. And I always say to them, you know, you're going to end up recruiting one of those guys and signing it, but you'll lose to a team that's just tougher than yours. And you're passing up on kids that uh, are, have higher ceilings. I'm sorry, lower ceilings and higher floors, but are just tougher and less risk. And you just ignore them. And they go to a smaller school than yours and kick your ass in the NCAA tournament. So uh, I think that we're way behind, Chris, in terms of understanding uh, how we play jazz with five on five and we get focused on finding the Derrick Roses and Russell Westbrooks and LeBron James. And I, I think it's a huge mistake that teams make. Well, and it speaks to the fact that as coaches, we're really good at pointing out what's wrong with players and we're less effective sometimes at developing what they're not good at or what they can do better that they already do well. And that's what player development speaks about, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Well, so you hit on something that's been pretty damn important to me, which is that that focus on uh, what they're doing wrong. I, I just yesterday was talking to an owner of a high level team in, an, in a very, very good international league. 
And the owner of the team likes a player that I suggested to him that I don't work with. It's just someone that I know about for next year's team. And he sent it to his general manager, who was a former player in that very big league, very famous league overseas. And the, and then my the owner sent back the screenshot of what the GM sent him, which was basically, you know, the kid's really small and, and there is some degree of success for players that size in our league, but he better be a pretty special player to be able to move the needle for our team. Well, we're talking about high-level professional basketball. Are you saying that if he was three inches taller, he'd have to be so special to make a difference? Like, it's crazy talk to me. We're all looking for special people, right? And at and, and every degree, until you get to the highest levels of the league, of the NBA, uh, you, you aren't going to get the guy you think you're going to get. You're going to keep trying. You're going to keep trying. And you're going to pass up on a lot of other kids that can help you win games. And when you finally have to give up on the guy that you're chasing, you're never going to get, that you didn't get, you're going to settle for someone far lower on your list. That doesn't mean he can't help you win. It just, it, to me, it's a process problem because you've wasted weeks, months, uh, going after a kid you have no chance of getting and losing lots of other guys in the process. And also what you haven't been doing a whole lot is player development. And that's where I feel like, and again, this is what I've focused on my whole career is, I mean, I built my reputation originally on guys like Udonis Hasselbeck when I drafted. In 2002, we went undrafted. I trained him beginning summer of 03. And he's still playing in the NBA in 2021. I mean, I had GM tell me my face he'd never make it. I had, I had the Heat former GM, Randy Fun, tell me he'll probably never dress for a game. This was when he, before he was a rookie when he just signed for like $75,000 minimum for a guarantee around just 75 grand. Uh, and so the reality is people are wrong all the time. It's hard to project the future. I get that. Uh, and I, I actually give speeches to CEOs about that exact idea. If you look at this, the history of television, the Hollywood movies, like almost every blockbuster, almost every gigantic TV show, no one thought would be successful. And it was almost made in, by accident. And yet it worked out great. I think, I think basketball players and basketball programs, we have similar stories we can tell. But I think, I think it's because the process is bad. And if we focus more on, okay, I'm going to take you faults and all because of your work ethic, because of your attitude. Maybe you're already a great athlete without skill. Maybe you're a great athlete, great skill, no clue how to play. Like you can subtract any of those of those assets, uh, but develop them. Now, if a guy's missing all three things, don't recruit him. But if he's got one of three or two of three, well, it's your job to do the rest and coach him up and value that. And I just don't think, I wrote an article today on truth.com about at the trade deadline, all these NBA teams would love to add elite level talent and they're ignoring all the tough guys that they could get. Meanwhile, Alex Caruso was an enormous, enormous impact on the NBA finals last year guarding Tyler Hero in very important parts of close games, but the Lakers won in six. And absent Caruso, who went undrafted, uh, when it means 30 teams passed on him at least twice, and then no one offered him a two-way deal right away. Uh, the Lakers could have lost that series, and Alice Caruso, even with AD and LeBron and Rondo, right, and Contavious Colapopa, lottery pick, uh, Caruso was a huge difference maker. And I just think too many of those guys are left unseen. Well, such great points. And uh, it doesn't just apply, obviously, at the college or the NBA level. This applies at the youth level as well. And why do we lose sight of the fact that skill can trump most things when you combine it with, as you say, jazz? 
Oh, oh, I don't know the answer to why they do it, but you're definitely right. <laughs> it's a hypothetical, uh, right? <laughs> yeah. I was talking, again, I was talking to this owner yesterday who's a, a close friend of mine. And he was asking, like, what, what are we doing wrong? I, I don't want to run an international team. I'm not moving anywhere. Uh, my family's based here. My parents are here. My mother-in-law lives here. They're all five minutes away. And my kids are freshmen in college and in Florida schools. I'm not going anywhere. But he asked me to look at his roster and say, you have one guy makes 37% of his threes, one guy makes 35 and nothing. No one else shoots threes and, and don't even shoot that many threes to begin with. Meanwhile, your top two competitors have six guys and five guys at 35% or better. Like you're, you've lost before you've started. In fact, I told him it's a miracle. You're top four. You, you don't have skill. I don't know what you're doing, but you don't have skill. And, uh, and I feel like uh, the teams that have recognized the value of skill, of pure skill, and then coaching around it, are, I think they're getting better. That's a good sign. I'll remind you of something. In my opinion, you, you and I are both of, of similar ages. So I, I can't speak with authority on the 70s Luol Cinder teams, on the 60s Luol Cinder teams, 70s Milwaukee teams. I love them and when I look back and read books. But to me, the best team of my lifetime has been the, the Gator team that won back-to-back titles. And I'm biased because I went to school there long before they did. And I worked a lot with Joaquim Noah and Corey Brewer. So, yeah, I'm jaded that way. But I'm pretty much paid to be objective all the time. And so so we, you can argue with me. They are the only team that went back-to-back, right, since the early 90s when, when everything really changed. Uh, but on that team was a two-guard named Lee Humphrey that I promise you most schools were turning down because he's not a great athlete. And their point guard, Torian Green, if my memory serves, and I'm old, I don't think he was turning out a bunch of high major schools. And they won three SEC titles at a school that wasn't, I think they'd won one SEC title in history before them. They won three straight. People always forget that. Yeah, they won two NCAA tournaments when, when those big three with, with sophomores and juniors, but they won the SEC as freshmen. So they won, they literally, Chris, lost one tournament game. I'm talking about holiday tournament, SEC tournament, NCAA tournament, one game in three years. And that was their, their second game, their freshman year in the NCAAs. That's it. And it was with two guys that a lot of schools would pass up. And of course, three amazing players, none of which were great scorers. Corey Brewer, Al Horford, Joakim Noah. No one would list them in any list of scoring, right? And, I, and Corey was a McDonald's All-American. Joakim and Al Horford weren't. They got coached up. And, and I've talked to Joe and I've talked to a number of players in that team. Lee Humphrey is someone they revere. Toughness, guarded the ball, shot the three great. And uh, uh, they knew how good he was and was fearless. And I just think in today's world, Lee Humphrey has a tough time getting a high major offer until maybe, you know, July of his, after he graduates, if someone has an opening. And that's a mistake. Same as Wayne Green for that matter. Such great points. And, and I love approaching it from this concept because we're going to get into what actually makes up player development. And specifically something that uh, resonates with me that you talk about is the number one answer you give when someone asks you about getting more playing time. I always say, hey, it's simple. Get more skilled. You go even more in depth and you talk about develop your weak hand. Can you share it with us some of your insights about developing the weak hand? Yeah, well, I thought you were going to say help your team win more because that's really what I do say. Uh, ultimately, we're supposed to try to help teams win, right? So at the pro level, especially, there's not a lot of time 
they're not really patient with you typically. You better help your team. You when I say win, I mean win the minister on the court, right? We 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 have metrics for all of that. But yeah, so the we can stuff. I mean, that's one of the few things I didn't play past high school and I was just an okay high school player. I actually got better when I left high when I graduated with the college. But the one thing I was was ambidextrous because my dad was a lefty, is a lefty, and I was right-handed and I copied him. So I didn't even know. I eat with my left hand to this day and around probably eight feet, you wouldn't know if I was left or right-handed when I, when I played. When I used to play horse with my nine-year-old son, I would only play left-handed and he didn't understand why I didn't miss a whole lot from inside 15 feet because he didn't know what ambidextrous meant, right? Um, so I knew it helped me a ton. I knew that I, you couldn't just force me left uh, or force me to just finish left. And so the personal thing for me, and then I was lucky enough to coach my, my second year of high school coaching. I had a 6'6", 300-pound big guy named Dimitri Hill, who was an eighth grader then, who was coming to play for our team in St. Pete for high school uh, for his ninth grade year. And Dimitri was a guy that you couldn't move at 6'6", had, had the greatest hands to this day I've ever seen in my career. I mean, Chris Weber had great hands, and I saw Barkley play in college in person. He had pretty good hands, but... Dimitri had as good a hand as I've ever seen before. And I've talked to Lon Kruger and he would agree with me. Uh, Lon coached him then. And um, and I just felt like he can't jump over anybody. We have we had all sorts of high major and mid-major talents in our area. I took him to you know camps all over the country, BC camp, five-star camp. He wasn't going to be able to jump around people or use quickness, but I thought that if he could finish equally as adeptly with his weekend at left hand. He'd be impossible to guard because you weren't going to take the ball from him at that weight and size and power. And um, it really worked. He just, you couldn't, no matter what you wanted to force him to do, it was like, okay. Like, it didn't matter. There wasn't, there was a move, counter move, but the counter move was every bit as good as the regular move because they didn't care what Danny finished with. And um, and that, so that was 23 when that started happening. And I realized, all right, I, I've got to really double down on this. And so we we met our priority as a simple example. And I'm, I'm sure you have younger coaches listening. At our team, on our team, when I was the JV coach in the in the late '80s, when you attempted to make a, a play with your weak hand, including a finishing play, and you missed, we applauded you. We, I mean, we made it a big deal. Our bench had to stand up when you try to finish with your left hand. Uh, now. To be fair, if we were down one with three seconds left, I probably would prefer to make the shot. I don't remember if it ever happened or not. But during the game, nope. If we miss, we miss. But we're gonna. My job was to create them uh, to make better varsity players. So that was a passion of mine, and I helped with the varsity. I was as much a voice as our head coach, who would, we didn't even know was kind of suffering from cancer through much of my years there. He ended up dying from it after I left. But I just know I had to be really active because he wasn't always feeling great, and. Um, there's no question it helped our players so much. And then fast forward years, many years later, I was working with a, a player you probably have heard of named Chris Carrollwell. Chris was the first team All-American at Duke, Madonna's All-American from Cardinal Ritter in St. Louis. And uh, Chris could not finish with his left hand. I was astounded at that. And I don't, I mean, I coach a lot of Duke players. I don't at all have denigrated anything Duke is doing, that's for sure. But I realized that at the college level, they're really, they're really playing chess with pieces that they know are rooks and pawns and knights and so I'm not knights, bishops. Like, okay, Mike Shusevsky, you gave him a jigsaw puzzle and he he built the best masterpiece he could. 
And I thought the NBA is not going to do that. Uh, I, they will if once you've established yourself, but until you establish yourself, they won't. So you better be versatile. And then once they figure out a role for you, well, then you may be stuck just in that role. But to get there is hard. So like with, with Udonis, um, we, he already had a great left hand, but it's the same idea here. I thought we had to make him a much better rebounder. And so we really focused on rebounding, even though he couldn't shoot. I told him, I don't care if you can't shoot. No one's going to let you shoot anyway. You're an undrafted player. Rebound and play defense. Once you make it doing that, shooting will get us paid. We'll make the league as a rebounder and defender and a leader and a tough guy, but we'll get paid because you can make the 18-foot shot, which back then in 2003 is what power forwards typically did, except for dirt. And it works. And so I think the weak hand is the easiest thing to do of those things I just talked about. It's hard to get better rebounding, especially when you're undersized. Uh, it's hard to get better a lot of things. We can't develop in a cinch. It's easy. You just got to spend time on it. Every day, like a plant needs water. Uh, and if you do it, I think you'll see an immediate improvement in your game. Hey, Coach, I know I've told you about this before, but bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Football might be over, but NBA, college basketball, and the NHL are in full swing. Bet online even covers award shows, TV, and reality TV. Real-time updated odds and props on almost anything you can imagine. BetOnline has you covered for all the news, scores, and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. BetOnline, your sports book experts. Please use promo code ARMCHAIR at checkout. Well, I want to circle back to something that the coaches, I hope they noticed you said this, that when you were talking about shaping the left hand or weak hand in a player, the number one thing you said was, first of all, we created a safe environment for it to happen. And then the second thing is you noticed it, you celebrated it, regardless of outcome. And that's definitely a challenge for coaches is that we evaluate too much based just on outcome when we talk about development, right? 100% right. I have a chapter in my book. Uh, I think it's called Standing Ovations for Turnovers. It's been four years now since I first published it. So I, I forget some time to chapter, but Standing Ovations for Turnovers. So in our gym, when we're doing player development stuff, uh, like, like say, for example, ball handling, we have, and whoever's in the gym with me as a coach, a staff member, we are erupting with applause when you try really hard and fail. I know you've talked to Ryan Pannone, uh, who worked for me for a long time, you know, 14 years, whatever it was. I don't know how long, but it was over a decade. Uh, we're still super close now. Um, he knows. Like, we we made it a big deal. You you had to feel safe to make the mistake. Now, keep in mind, I wasn't coaching them in game. These are pros who played for other people. But if you're not going to make the mistake in practice, you're not going to ever be good enough to even try to move in a game. Because that's what informs your practice habits, Right. In fact, games, games should be what informs the curriculum for your practice the next day, not just at the team level. Of course, that seems obvious. If you have a bunch of turnovers against the Diamond Press, you probably should spend some time the next day dealing with the Diamond Press. But I'll bet you it's not just schemes, right, that are beating you when a team is pressing you to death. It's your lack of skill and fundamental or knowledge of you know, how to play. And I've been lucky enough to coach very high-level high school players at – like I, we won national championships and, a, and, and state championships. And I didn't do much work because the guys could all just really play. 
And then it was easy. No matter what you did, our guys could figure stuff out. That's that's fun. I got the credit. I didn't do any of the work. The kids all knew how to play. They weren't my players. But when they are my players, that's different. But uh, there was just like an all-star group. Uh, you, you've got to let them fail. You've got to let them understand what they're doing wrong because that's what they should be working on. And that's, just so you know, that is exactly what we do with our pros. Like literally, literally last night in the NBA game, a client of mine, uh, he, he, he just had a little floater. He's a brilliant three-point shooter and he pulled the string on his floater. And of course he missed it really short. So I, I talked to him about it and I said, I don't know if I want this in your head because you have a game tonight. And he said, no, no, send it to me. I want to see it. I'm visual anyway. And I said, okay, make sure you get a bunch of these before your game tonight. And that's common. This is what we do when they make mistakes. They see it and they address it. So that the next day they won't make the same mistake. And whatever that mistake might be, we're going to, you know, they, they may make it one more than once, but the best players tend to move beyond their, their some mistakes pretty quickly and, and don't do it nearly as often. The, the worst, the lesser players tend to make the same mistakes more often, right? So that's our job as coaches, to point out where we can get better tomorrow at practice after a game. Well, that also speaks to the intent of the player, which is their intent to improve, which is something that you and others have helped instill in a player. And that that's our job as a coach, right? To instill this desire to improve. And you talked about winning, like ultimately the goal is winning. I feel as a coach, our goal is to help our team win and to help our players improve because more players would be retained in the game if they notice themselves improving. Is that fair to say? Oh, sure. I would, I want to take it to a macro level though. Um, Please. I think our job is to help players fall in love with the sport because it's, it's a necessary, a necessary ingredient to being good at it is to really work with very rare exceptions. And those exceptions tend to look like LeBron James. And if they look like LeBron James, they don't really love the sport. They won't be as good as LeBron James. All right. Our job is to, as at the rec level is to cast as wide a net as possible to get kids in our gym and try to get every one of them to love it so much they can't wait to come back again. And so that, that's where it starts, is you better fall in love with the sport. So what are we doing, right? I, I define leadership as breathing spirit with the hearts and minds of others. And so that's step one as a coach, quite frankly, in my opinion, as a husband, I've been married 31 years, I would hope my wife would say, I don't always succeed at this, but I try to breathe spirit in her life. And I'm not a religious man. I'm not talking about anything to do with God. I'm talking about my job as her husband to make her feel seen and loved and valued and, and heard, right? Um, and then I got to do the same thing with my kids who are twins. My twin, boy, girl, are away in college. My son is at Florida State as a basketball player. He plays tomorrow at 1245, and we'll be watching closely. My daughter, his twin sister, is a student at UCF studying at the famed Rosen College for hospitality. And my job is to breathe as much spirit to them as I can when I don't get to see them because they're not here anymore. And so if we do that as coaches, uh, it's just everything is easier after that. Everything is easier. When they know you have their back, you want them to succeed, you're with them. Uh, and then to your point, you know, a player seeking out that guidance, right? Having Wanting, being self-accountable. That's what probably separates most pros. Most pros blame themselves first and want to get better and aren't afraid of work and aren't afraid of struggle and aren't afraid of criticism. They welcome it. They want it. 
They, they would get angry with me if I wasn't truthful. I don't typically tell them they played badly. I, I normally will be more, uh, I'll be sober and accurate, but also be pragmatic. But if they just played a colossally terrible game in the NBA, pretty obvious when you do, I'm not going to sugarcoat it and say, you suck tonight. What, what was going through your head? I had a guy make a foul last night. I, I said, I told him after the game, I said, I'm so happy you did that crazy, stupid foul. Because it's been weeks since you've made a defensive error mentally. This guy's one of the top defensive players in the NBA. And uh, I had gotten spoiled. <laughs> I was so used to him never making a mistake on defense. And uh, he made two last night. And he was so upset. I said, you know what? Good. Now let's go on a long streak again of making no mistakes at all. Now, this guy's a, you know, he's not a kid anymore. He's, he's a veteran who knows how to play. But our job is to create that environment where they just can't wait to come. They can't wait to work. Just like as a dad or a mom, you want your you want your child away. I never had to tell my child, my son, to go work on his basketball at six in the morning. I never once woke him up ever. I created a culture. I tried with my wife to create a culture where that was valued. You know, if you love doing it, go do it. Don't think you'll be successful if you don't work. But you're allowed to go work. You're it's it's within your wheelhouse to to do that. So that was our job. And so I think that that's what we should be focused on most of all is creating. A culture where these guys and girls want to just keep trying to get better and not be afraid to fail because the game is built. Errors are built into the game. Failure is built in. So, you know, if you're missing six of 10 threes in the NBA, you're an elite shooter. Not as elite as it used to be because there's more of them, but you're still an elite shooter. 40% is mine and those are mine. So you better be able to deal with missing six of 10. But if you can do that, then you understand how the process works. And that's important. I love that. I love breathing spirit into them. And that's such a great lesson. And uh, we've talked a little bit about skill, but one of your mottos is develop your game, not just your skills. So can you talk about that in terms of the overall picture of development? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So we're, we just launched an app at the, the pro training center.com. It's in beta, uh, but we've got a lot of guys trying it and seem to be happy with it. Um, and the whole idea is to, to, it's my voice and it's our curriculum. It's my pros in, in the videos and, uh, and, and teaching and walking through the workout because it's a, it's a scripted workout. It's not you choose what to do. No, we tell you what to do. It's our curriculum. But the whole idea is to learn how to play the game better, when to use a certain move, how to use a certain move, how, when do you use the counter, how do you set your guy up? I feel like player developers now and and Chris, you know, most people think that I am the first guy to do this in America, if not the world, for money. I don't know. How would you possibly know in 1993 if anyone else was doing it? There was no internet. I know at Five Star, I was the only guy that was doing it. And, and no one else ever said to me, hey, I've got a guy like you where I, where I live. And I never once thought about the tricks. I just thought about how do I help guys play better so they win more games and their teammates will like what they see and want to come train with me and build my business that way. Nothing's changed. My job in, with NBA players now, or I have high-level guys in Europe too, it is not to teach them a trick. It teach them how to win games. How do you, uh, I call it the second box. So I think of the paint, think of the key. And, and from the rim to maybe seven, eight feet out is the first box in the paint. And the second box is up to the free throw line. And so we really work with our guys on battling like crazy to get to the second box and then read the game. Read the first box, read the help, you got to get to the second box and read. Don't probe baseline. I always say the baseline is death. Attack middle, attack middle, attack middle, and then read. I, I, I talked to a player yesterday 
and it's a player, a two-time player of the year in a very good conference in America who's little. And he called me yesterday for some guidance about, you know, playing overseas. And I watched tape on him and I told him, you get to the first box way too much. And he knew what the first box meant, but I explained it to him. And I said, you're too little. And the league's just, where you're going next is just taller guys. you got to develop, you know, Mike Conley's got the best floater in the game. And it's with his weak hand. His right hand floater might be the best floater in the game. For a decade, it's been that way. And uh, because he can't get to the rim all the time and score. So don't keep doing it. Get, you, you get no points for getting a shot off in Ocalia. You got to make it. And it's hard to make it against these tall guys. So you got to get the second box. So, you know, the step back 18 footer is, is just almost without question a bad shot for all but maybe three people on the planet. So why are you doing it? Uh, how, do we, how do we earn open shots? What else are we trying to do but get open shot for ourselves or a teammate? That's how you win games. You don't win games by taking tested shots almost anywhere to include the post. So um, that's what we try to do with our curriculum, with our app, as well as in my gym. When I talk to players on the phone, it's only at the NBA, it's really easy. We have such advanced metrics that I can just look at. There's a website I use called dunksandthrees.com, which NBA analysts tell me, NBA stat number guys for the league, for teams, have told me it's the best analytical site out there, dunksandthrees.com. And so they have a, a projection rating for offensive, defensive metrics. And so that's what I use for players. And so I don't care if you got a steal on a block and this, that, whatever. Where are numbers as it relates to the rest of the league on offensive defense? And if you can be on the court and your team can be better when you're on the court than off, you're building value. They can be much, much better. You're building more value. And that does not just come from ball handling tricks and shooting tricks. It's important to be able to make shots. It's important to be able to to do the Euro steps and all those kind of things. Don't get me wrong. We do all of them. All those are weapons uh, as, as is ball handling to get to the second box and to beat pressure and all of that. But ultimately you got to do it not just productively, but efficiently. And that's where I think most of the numbers are lost. If they're not, you know, people love what LaMelo Ball and Anthony Edwards look like. They're both horrendous defensive players right now. They may get very defensive. If they do, great. But if you don't get good at defense, well, you have to be a top five percentage offense. In other words, 95th percentile on offense to really be a difference maker. Damian Lillard, James Harden, Kyrie Irving, those guys. They can be bad defensive players and get away with it because their offense is so elite. Uh, Ball might get there. He might get there. We don't know. It was too early. We'll see. I would never judge a rookie, good or bad, after just you know 40 games. But they've got to get better on defense. And that's part of it, too, is we address defense in our, in our stuff. We, in fact, we do ball handling and attacking moves with our bigs because we think it helps them play defense better against perimeter-based players, which when everyone switches, they see more. So that's all part of the curriculum. You've got to develop the whole game. You also have to learn, we do a lot of work on dribble handoff, even by yourself in a driveway. Our drills are based on, imagine you're, you're playing, with, they call it the get game. I call it Spurs action, because the first game I thought I did it was the Spurs. But they call it the get game, where you, you throw it to someone and go chase it, or then you know refuse it and go back door. We practice that all the time. And then you get to learn to play with other people. And so that's all built to our curriculum as well. It's super important. It's not one game. It's not five games of one-on-one anymore like it was in the 80s and 90s because of the illegal defense rule in the NBA. It's one game of five-on-five. It's always been that way for high school and college. And so guys have to learn how to play the game and not just how to play solo. It's great to get your perspective on these things. And and one thing that you, t- you talked about, develop your game, 
focuses on skill and athletic development working together. And I've heard you talk about this on podcasts and in some of your articles. And specifically, one thing that you've mentioned, which I want you to address here, is this concept of changing directions and sudden stops and starts. Can you talk about how that how important that is to player development? Yeah, what a great question. Thank you. Um, well, I, I don't claim to be a genius, but I'm really good, really, really, really good because I'm old at identifying genius. And right now, the two best guys in the league at sudden stops and sudden starts are Luka Doncic and, and James Harden. So if you can't copy what those guys are doing, you're not paying attention because neither of them are elite athletes, although Harden's a pretty damn good athlete, but he's not in Russell Westbrook's league. But nobody can guard those guys because they're going to just sudden stop. And this is documented, by the way. I talked to the guys who run P3 in Atlanta. Instead of, I'm sorry, Santa Barbara in Atlanta. Um, Dr. Marcus Elliott, the founder there, he's an incredible guy. And, uh, and so he confirmed that they, they're the highest they've ever tested for the quickest of, of stopping and starting again. So if it's good enough for those guys, how are we not doing it? So, yeah, we really focus on sudden starts and stops almost every day on our, with our handle. And we mix it up a lot of different ways of how we get how we get into it, how, what we do with the ball through a leg, behind our ankles, crossing over, hesitate, all those kind of things. But the idea, so defensively, we want to force offensive players into an area or onto a, into a side if they're one-hand dominant. Uh, uh, and we want to be able to gauge their speed. And so offensively, if we can't, if we don't let our defender know where we're going, know when we're stopping or starting, uh, know when we're changing direction, we become much harder to guard. So those sudden stop, starts and stops throw our defender's rhythm completely off. It's why I also teach, I call it the freeze fake. No one really, I don't think there's another name for it. Uh, a shot fake to me is uh, ball gets above your head. A freeze fake is, I call it chest to chin. It just freezes the defender. I copied it from Dirk Nowitzki because you couldn't block his shot unless you timed it up right because it's 10 feet tall. So he would just go a little freeze fake, I called it. He would freeze the defender, and then he kind of owned it. And he might shot fake after that. He might shoot, he might drive, whatever he wanted. So we do a lot of freeze fakes in our, in our workouts because it freezes the defender. So does it stopping uh, suddenly move. And then you don't have to start suddenly if you don't want to. It's pretty explosive if you do. But you also want to mix up how fast you restart. Because, again, the whole idea is to throw the rhythm and timing up, right? Same thing with the freeze fake. Guy's closing you out and you freeze fake and he stops. Well, you've just blown his timing to go contest your shot. That's the genius move. I love this. And I, I love this discussion because these are some under-taught and under-understood concepts that lead to success for players. And uh, I love that P3 example to just be able to drive it home as well. And uh, you also mentioned defense in our last conversation. So I'm curious from your perspective, is the modern NBA player more aware of their defensive efficiencies or efficiencies because of defensive analytics and the more value we put behind analytics? For sure. Go watch a game in the 80s and laugh at the idea that there was handshaking. Nobody was guarding anybody. Go watch. The way they were playing defense, nobody could shoot. I can picture it, coach. I can picture it. (laughs) Yeah, nobody was shooting out there. No one guarded you until you got to the paint. Now, did they want to ride you out a little bit in the paint? Sure. It happens now. Nothing's changed. It's, 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 uh, they might call more fouls now. I'm not arguing with that. Um, but, but defenders are also way better at kind of getting away with because they have to be. They know they can't just club a guy. Um, but, uh, 
your defense, just the intensity wasn't the same. You couldn't even help until the guy you wanted to help already had the ball and he was at a certain point on the court. Uh, unless it was an all-out double, there was no shading. I mean, it's it's a joke compared to what they do now. And I think metrics, I mean, I can speak from experience. I had a player hire me simply because he was going to get rotation minutes because of his offensive talent. And his defense apparently was terrible. And he called his agent and said, I need help. I don't know what to do. No one's coaching me. This is the NBA. They don't really coach up on that. They just go to the next guy. And he's like, I don't want to blow this chance because he is a great shooter. And um, the agents called me and and I taught him how to play blackjack on defense. And uh, and that's just, everything is about probability, right? You want to you wanna live with the good result. If you're a dealer at blackjack, if you're, if you're the house and you can get everyone to have to, you, you're showing a, basically a seven, eight, nine, or 10 on a face card as the dealer, as the house, and you can keep throwing 16s out to the people playing, you're going to be the richest casino of all time. And so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to force the player we're guarding to hit on 16. And he's going to hit some, for sure. He's going to hit some. And we, we cannot let that affect us emotionally, which is what happens typically with players, especially young players. As I teach my offensive players against young players, when you make a shot, the very next time you attack that player, make sure you fake him first because he is going to be so fired up to stop you the next time, you'll get him there and you get him to foul you. And that's our number one goal is to get the free throw line, right? Our number one goal is always to get fouled shooting a three. It's the single best play in basketball offensively in terms of the probability of scoring and single worst play defensively, right? If you look at the metrics of it. So that's what we want to do is get fouled shooting a three. So against a young player, we make a three. One of my players makes a three on him. We're going to fake him the next time, get him up in the air and draw the foul. Try to get three free throws. Uh, same thing for two, right? Uh, same thing on a move you make. If you beat him on a crossover the next time, hit him with a hezzy because he's expecting the cross and he's going to sit on that cross. The young, the young player is. The veteran player, the one that understands how to play blackjack, has a plan. And he's going to try to enforce you individually. And then, of course, you've got to think about the scheme for the team into the, the shot you practiced the least or made the least on a consistent level. And... Uh, and live with the result and not get so emotional the next time. And you make two or three in a row, yeah, probably switch it up. Don't jump in the air and get caught for a foul or whatever, but like you can't you can't let Dirk Nowitzki get comfortable doing a fadeaway from 12 feet or any Anthony Davis. You, you've got to mix it up a little bit. You, you uh, Those, the world's best players, it's a mistake to only play blackjack with them. But there's like 11 of those guys. The rest of the league, you can do that with. You can make them make the tough shot all the time and they're just not going to do it. That's why they're not the best players in the world. And so uh, I know for my son, it's something we we talked about some, but at the high school level, they're just they're so young. Um, when you get to the college level and beyond, you got to really start thinking about how to play blackjack and what what can I do to make them take the, the shot they don't want to take and then live with the result no matter how well they do. Hey, Coach, I know I've told you about this before, but bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Football might be over, but NBA, college basketball, and the NHL are in full swing. BetOnline even covers award shows, TV, and reality TV. Real-time updated odds and props on almost anything you can imagine. BetOnline has you covered for all the news, scores, and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. BetOnline, your sports book experts. Please use promo code ARMCHAIR at checkout. Hey coach, brief interruption to tell you about eBay sneakers. 
From rare dead stock to the latest release, you can find the exact sneaker you've been looking for on eBay. As the original sneaker marketplace, eBay is the place to go to get the pair you've been eyeing. And with eBay's authenticity guarantee, a team of independent professional authenticators perform a rigorous inspection of the sneakers you purchase before they're sent to you. So you can shop confidently knowing your pair is the real deal. And for the sneaker sellers out there, eBay has eliminated selling fees on sneakers $100 or more, making it free to sell or flip your collection. With other sites taking as much as 25%, you're going to have a lot of extra money left for more sneakers. Check out ebay.com slash sneakers today. So it strikes me as you're talking about trainer culture, and this is going to be a broad statement. I don't necessarily like broad statements, but Mm -hmm. the one thing I noticed from having seen trainers work out with players is there's very little attention to defense. And the number one way to be able to develop defense is to play defense. But because trainer culture is so focused on developing offensive skill, are we losing sight of the fact that you develop defense by playing defense? So there's less one-on-one, there's less offense versus defense. There's all these things are happening less because of the really what sells for a trainer. Well, I really can't speak to what sells for a trainer other than I know what's worked for me. Um, And uh, I'll tell you a story you'll appreciate. Uh, for a long, long, long time, a decade, I worked with an NBA player named Omi Caspi, starting his rookie year. And, and then later in his career, he had fought a hard times. He came back to me and Omi's now playing for Maccabi Tel Aviv because he makes a whole bunch of money in Israel. And he's got two kids and he wanted to be in his home country. So early in Omi's career, when I wasn't working with him, I noticed that you attacked him defensively. He really opened up his hips and let you attack him and then slid his feet. And I had Ryan Pinellon working for me. And I said, Ryan, Omri is an elite athlete. He's, he's one of the fastest players in the league. He's got extraordinary lateral quickness and coordination for a guy who's legit six foot 10. He's a guard. He can, he can flip his hips the way a cornerback does in football. And so we've got to work with him on not opening his hips so much. He, he could slide his feet against these guys. And so we practice it. I mean, it's all we did. We didn't have an offensive guy doing it. I don't, I don't allow competition in my workouts. I would if I was a high school coach, I guess, but I can't afford my pros to get hurt. So my job is to simulate game intensity, game speed, and, and remove all the risk of turning ankles and bumping knees. And so we just had to simulate uh, quick closeout and then slide, 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 and watch their hip movement, and we've showed them film. And literally the next year after we did this, for most of the year anyway, I think he dropped off the last couple of weeks in part because his team was just so terrible and they just had no energy because they were out of the playoffs. I believe it was the third rated small forward behind LeBron and KP. I might have been fourth behind Paul George too, I don't remember. But he was top five, elite. And I could tell a million of those kind of stories. We, you, you, yeah, you have to coach those things and you have to make them aware of it, right? And you have to drill it. And you have to, but I think the awareness part is the bigger issue. I actually think it's easier to do the physical thing. I think where most coaches and trainers probably fail is they don't make their clients aware or the player aware of the problem. And um, and it's part of our job is not to shed light on the weakness, right? You can't you can't plug a leak. You know where the leak is, so you got to show them the leak, and then you got to teach them how to fix it. So the other thing I would say is for big guys, for those. For those young, if anyone's listening to this that wants to one day maybe coach in the NBA, the, the first 
job I ever turned down for an MBA job because it wasn't what I wanted to do. I'll, I'll name names because um, I talked to him about it. Dwayne Casey. I didn't know Dwayne. I'm, I love him now. He called me one day and he said, uh, he introduced himself and he said, I'm calling you because our GM at the time, his name was Brian Colangelo, said, you won't come work for us. And I said, and he said, no matter what, I said, let me try. So he called me and said, um, I want to hire you because I watched Solomon Alibi play for Florida State. And uh, because Leonard Hamilton, uh, like, was with me at Kentucky. Like, it's my, that's my guy. And I know Solomon, they were amazing with lettering. It protected the paint and all of that. But he wasn't agile. He wasn't agile. And uh, he said, I just watched him do a mini camp where he destroyed Ed Davis, who ended up becoming a client of mine, too. Um, and I don't know what happened. I, I, this is not the player I ever saw in college. What did you do? Those guys are great player developers. And yeah, we know what Florida State does. But there weren't, it wasn't their job to help him get way better on the perimeter. Back then, he was just protecting the rim all the time. He was great at it. He was seven feet tall. And uh, so Coach Casey asked me what I did. And I said, we treated him like a guard. We made him move his feet all the time with the ball on the perimeter. And just to fast forward then, uh, I had a player in the G League bubble who moved from, he was one of the best centers in the G League last year and this past year in the bubble for the month, he played small forward. And he said, you know, Coach Thorpe, I always believed you when you said all the work we're doing with perimeter stuff is going to help my defense. He said, but I didn't really think about it. I just trusted you. But I'm realizing you're 100% right. I'm guarding guys. And because I spent so much time working on my attack skills, even though I knew I'd never do it in the game. I got my, my dribble got better. My hands got better. All those things got better. But I started thinking like a guard more. And I realized I can read them so much better. And I said, the other thing you did is, because I watched him play, is you moved your feet more than a slide or two better than you used to do. Because big guys tend to only slide twice and they kind of stop. I learned that from Lon Kruger. He used to do a drill he called a slide, slide, slide where he worked with uh, his players on hedging ball screens and they had to yell out loudly, slide, 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 every time as a, as a mental note of making sure you take the third slide. It's why I think guys like Joakim Noah and Anthony Davis have a huge advantage when they first get to the NBA. They were guards growing up. They're used to moving their feet more in, in space. And that's why it's, why it's exciting for the NBA when you've got the James Whitesons and all these guys that can really move they're already switching now. They're, they're 20 years old and switching on, in the space. They're not good at it now. They will be. They, they, they don't have it boiled into their DNA that they can't move their feet. They can. So our job is to help all these guys understand they can do stuff in space. No matter what they're using with their team, our job is to prepare them for the next team, right? If these guys want to play in college, we have to make them more valuable. And um, I, I, my guess is, I mean, I've worked in gyms where I had a basket with a pro guy just doing a little work. And I'd, I'd watch a trainer work with five, six, seven guys, and I never say a word. But my my pros have often said, how is that guy not just asking you to if he can just take notes or film what we're doing? Because all the shit they're doing, we've never done with you one time. And we would never do those things in the game. We get paid to play. And I didn't really, I didn't really have an answer for it. I don't know what they're doing. I know that, that I have lots of coaches who seem to like to come to my workouts and take it back to their high school teams. But most trainers, I tend to think that they feel like they've got their own innovative style and that's fine. But I don't think they're addressing 
those kinds of things, and they probably should be. They probably should be. And uh, what strikes me also hearing you talk is your understanding that development is not linear. Development's nonlinear and uh, that it's a process over time. Can you talk to that piece a little bit so that we can understand a little bit more your process? Yeah, sure. So I actually, um, I'll first start with uh, an interesting thing I noticed when I was, when we were raising our twins, we noticed that when they, when they made a cognitive leap in some aspect of their life, maybe it was going from baby food to solid food, or it was crawling, or think of all the things you know, our children do when they make a big leap, it seemed to always be combined with a, a step backwards somewhere else. We didn't see it at first, but eventually we realized, you know what? This is like the fifth time they've made a big step forward. Now they're going backwards. And so, for example, when they were potty trained, which we did over a week during spring break when they were not yet three, because they were going to nursing school twice a week for two hours a day, um, we, we were prepared at this point because they were chewing babies. So in the spring, we realized, okay, we've got a, we're going to potty train them, but we know they're going to go backwards somehow. So we really focused on, on not letting them slip uh, backwards too much. Um, it's the same thing with players. They just, you, there's no such thing as mastering this. Okay, the box is checked. I'm good with that forever. It's not like riding a bike. It doesn't work that way. You, you don't work on your shot for a while, it's going to get worse. You don't work on your handle for a while, it's going to suffer, okay? So um, contrary to that would be when they do make that big leap and also have, have, will have maintained all the other things that they've been doing, well, you're going to see a big jump. I, I, sometimes it's just knowing the game. Sometimes it's adding one really good scoring weapon, and now you can play off it. Uh, sometimes just understanding of where to be, like James Weissman for the Warriors, is the, the way I describe it is, you remember the game Frogger? Oh, absolutely. Okay, so so the NBA for James Weissman, he's, he's the frog on a five-lane highway, <laughs> but all five lanes are trying to crash into him. That's hard. They're going 100 miles an hour, and they all want to hurt him. And the other four guys in his team would like him to figure it out and stay in his lane, but they got their own stuff to worry about, too. It's hard. It's a hard game. So as the game slows down, you start reading the game more. You start seeing the patterns of the game, the pace of the game. Uh, you start anticipating much better. He doesn't anticipate much right now. The game gets much, much easier. And, and then you can really start seeing his talent beyond you know, the, the occasional thing, you know, he had a couple of good games in a row this past week, but and now he's hurt, he hurt his wrist a little bit. Um, it's going to set, set him back. But yeah, you, the, the problem I think is we want, we want it to be linear, like we're climbing a mountain. And it, and so we, we get frustrated when that doesn't happen and the player feels that. And our job is to re-spirit and to make sure they know, no, 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 this is how it goes. There's no other way but this way. This is the way. Like, uh, you know Jerry Seinfeld is, right? Yep. So Jerry Seinfeld has an amazing documentary that every single basketball coach should watch. It's called Comedian. And it's 20 years old. And it's a little bit of his story uh, in comedy, but it also tells the story of a young comedian who's trying to make it. And at one point, at this point, Jerry Seinfeld is the most famous comedian, maybe of all time, certainly the best revenue maker. 
because the show was pretty much already done. And uh, it was the biggest revenue maker ever for a comedian. Uh, and this young comedian, who's not that young, but it's his 30s, he says, like, don't you just want to, you know, spike the ball in a sense and say touchdown and call your mom and dad and, and you know you've done it. And he looks at him like he's got three heads and Seinfeld's like, no, like that isn't the way this game is played. It's brutal. It's, it's you're going to get heckled. You're going to fail. You're going to bomb. Comedy is hard. A professional comedian is hard. It, it, it never stops. It doesn't matter if I'm famous. They don't laugh. They don't enjoy themselves. They're not going to bring me back. Like it, it's, it's a brutal business. That's exactly how I feel our business is. It is hard. And, and you're dealing at the NBA level with the best players in the world, best athletes in the world, motivated, competitive beasts. They just want to work and work and crush you. And if you aren't steely enough to deal with that, then don't complain about the profession. Find another one because that's how this profession is. And the problem I have with that is that isn't the way it should be at the high school level. And I'm incredibly disappointed in a huge percentage of the high school coaches that I've seen, both ones that have coached my son and coached against my son, that act as if these players work for these coaches. And completely ignorant of the fact that these guys get four years and that's it. And that's their only four-year experience they're ever going to have in high school. And these coaches can coach for 40 years if they want to, literally, literally 40 years plus. And the arrogance and laziness of most of these guys who want you to bend to their will and do it their way, the way, even though they may not have gone to a clinic in 30 years or studied a game in 20. Uh, I'll ask you this, Chris. Do I sound like someone that hasn't studied the game a little bit? Absolutely not. It sounds okay. like you're still studying the game every second. That's all, What option do we have? The game is changing all the time. And I find myself incredulous at talking to high school coaches who haven't changed what they're doing in decades. And it, and, and then to blame the players as if these players are lazy. Man, my, my son was up at 6 a.m. every day. My wife and I never had to wake him up. And he wasn't alone. When he, when he had a teammate that wanted to do it, it was the best. And his coach wouldn't even open the gym for him. Luckily, we have enough room here at our outside or house. He could work there. Rain or shine, he was there at 6 in the morning, dark as hell. That, and, and again, he wasn't alone. That's common. Uh, I listened to an amazing pod yesterday. Jay Adane, my, my dear friend J.A., was talking to Jack McCallum, a great writer, who wrote Seven Seconds or Less and many other amazing books and articles. And they have a pod about the Redeem team. Jack McCallum did his pod about the Dream Team because he was covering it and kept tapes all these years. And they've done another one now called the Redeem Team, which was, the, I think, maybe, I don't remember what year it was, maybe 08, 04, Whenever year we try to win a championship and Jerry Colangelo and Mike Krzyzewski took over. And they interviewed Coach Krzyzewski. And he has this great story that every high school coach should listen to. And it was, uh, it was two things Coach K talked about. One was, he said, he said to PJ Carlissimo, and like, who was a assistant coach then for the Spurs and Pop and Nate McMillan, you know, a longtime head coach in the NBA, still is. And he said, the guys aren't listening to me when we're stretching, when, when, we're, when I'm talking to them in the locker room. He's like, they've got these foam rollers and these balls and these bands. He's like, they're not looking at me. And they said, coach, they hear every word, but they're taking care of their bodies. And I know from experience, that's exactly how it is before every workout I do with anyone but rookies. Rookies don't understand. 
veterans bring all the gadgets because they are taking care of their bodies. And I knew my son had turned a corner when this summer, um, during the pandemic break, he couldn't go to school. He was supposed to go to Florida State. He couldn't. He always brought all that stuff. He had not ever brought it before, ever. He knew. He just was too stupid. He was 18. But but at 19, this summer, I turned 19, he's like, okay, I got to do more. And so I love that Coach Shashevsky was warned. These guys are doing it. The second part was he built a council. LeBron, Wade, Jason Kidd, and, uh, oh, shoot, Kobe. And said, that was his, his war council, I said. And he was walking through his process for the, their first training together and included two a days. And they're like, eh, no, coach, that's not happening. Here's what's going to happen. We're going to do your first practice and we're going to go all out. But then some guys are going to stay and do a second practice on their own because they want to do it all at one fell swoop. Some guys are going to home and, and lift weights and they're going to come back at night and do their work. But we're never going to do two days as a group. And you're never going to have to worry about conditioning us. We will be in shape. Do not worry. That is what we do. We, we don't. And Coach K understood. And he said they made me such a better coach. I'm sure, quite frankly, he became a much better coach at Duke when he realized all those years, those Duke players were so focused on winning. They would have done whatever he asked them to do. You didn't have to handhold them. So to me as coaches, uh, and I can speak from experience, these pros, you know, when I tell a pro, and this is something I do, for example, pre-draft, they got to be in shape for pre-draft. In the middle of a drill, I might say, okay, three sprints, go. Or down and back four times, go. They never look at me funny. They never ask why. They drop the ball and take off. Because they know they got to be in shape. I'm on their side, right? Well, why would it be different when you're coaching their team? You're all on the same side. So build that trust. You want to have a team that wins? Build their trust that you've got their back and every, every ounce of energy and every syllable you utter is on their side, on their behalf to win games and play better. And there would be no arguments. They'll do whatever you say. Then just don't be a sadist, right? It's not a military camp. My, my players know we work really hard, but the workout's only 48 minutes. That's how long a game is. If you go longer than that, you ain't going hard enough. Trust me, because these guys cannot get through more than 45, 46 minutes tops plus stretching and everything else if you're going full speed now it's different if you're going half speed because it's a it's a recovery day that's fine but on hard days which we want to do twice a week typically we never go two hard days in a row almost ever for preparation purposes because risk for injury goes up too much but um we'll go hard twice and then and a hard dunk, a hard workout might be 150 dunks in a workout you know 30 full court sprints lots of other quick athletic stuff but almost always the next day is going to be more of a recovery skill day, craft finishes, not as many sprints and maybe half speed sprints, uh, under control ball pushes, because the idea is to build up bodies, not destroy them. So if you're working with your team and you, and you are studying the latest science on how to build their bodies into uh, better machines, right? How to prevent injury, how to care for them. If, you're, if your player is sick and you text them, and you check with their parents at their high school. Uh, I, I, my son broke his ankle junior year. The head coach got the text that he broke his ankle, and we never heard from him again. Uh, the assistant coaches came to the hospital that night. Um, you, if you don't care about your athletes, you're in the wrong business. And we have too many guys in the wrong business, as I've seen it for a long time now.
agree with so much of what you said there, coach, and uh, so many things to unpack. And uh, the one thing that I, I want to come kind of connect is you talked about bringing a team together. You, you've talked about the concept of blackjack. I've also heard you talk about this concept of royal jelly, which I believe is in relation to bringing a team together. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so royal jelly in the real world, in the science world, is is what when, when so every bee is born, every bee like a honeybee is born genetically the same, and uh, they're all exact. The males are the males, the females are the females, and none of them can bear eggs. None of them can lay eggs. The females have to be fed what they call royal jelly. There's a Latin for it, short. And, and the combination of that royal jelly, and then they're also literally, literally put into a bigger cell in the hive so they can grow differently and bigger. That combination triggers something in the DNA that allows the ability to, to make eggs. And that's how queens are made. And that's how the species is propagated. So when I first read about this, I thought, well, we really are in the same business. Uh, I've got to feed all my athletes who are you know, the guys, the guys, the girls, the girls, and I pretty much have always worked with, with guys. And they're all going to be more or less about the same, but I have to build, give them a bigger cell in the hive and then breathe into them that spirit, that royal jelly, to help them think they can be better than what they probably otherwise thought before they met me. It's very rare if I met a young player who thought he was going to be better than what I thought he could be. I've had some NBA players who thought they could be better than I did, but that's a different story. And I tend not to work with those guys. I don't think that's a place I can succeed at. So we have to feed them royal jelly. Well, how do you do it? You, you, you say loving things to them. You say positive things to them. You tell them the truth. The truth is part of royal jelly. Lying to them is not something. Man, these guys have been hustled their whole life. The better they get, the more they've been hustled. They want to know the truth. And so I feed them the truth, but I mix in the, the long-term truth too, which is you suck at this. Now we get better at this. Here's how we do it. I have a, a chapter in my book called Embrace the Suckiness, and I developed it with my own son, where he, he was a baseball player when he was eight years old or nine years old, and he could really pitch and field, but he couldn't hit. And he was playing with older guys. He was crying. He cried. He said, Dad, I just want to get a hit. I said, okay. I said, listen, you suck at hitting. I'm with you. But so what? Quit crying about it. I don't care. Like, why would you be a good hitter? You're nine years old playing against 13-year-olds because you can pitch and field. Let's just get better. Like, why are we assigning the, uh, something so important to a nine-year-old or a 12-year-old or an 18-year-old? Uh, I think it's a mistake. So I said, let's just, let's just admit we suck and get better together. Let's figure it out together. And I'm happy to say in baseball, we did. Uh, it's something we talk about in all aspects of, of life. Embrace the suckiness. It's okay to be bad at something. It's not okay to just accept it unless it's not important. And if it's not important, what are you worried about? If it's important, let's just get better. And so that's all part of that royal jelly. If you do that for every player individually, I think collectively, you're in the aggregate, the team can come together and, and be much more formidable. Well, it's great stuff. And it, it speaks to your view of modern development for players and for people in general is that you have to excel as leaders and teammates as well as obviously being just supremely talented or skilled. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it comes down to this. So I know you have coaches that listen to you. What are you in this business for? You know, if you're if you're going to make money, fine. You're allowed to pursue whatever industry you want to pursue. But if it's at the expense of building young people up, I think you're making a mistake. Uh, we, to me, I've always seen basketball as a tool 
to reach young people on more important life lessons. That's all I've ever really thought about as a coach. Uh, if I can make them better people, I'm enormously proud that almost every young man that I coached in the 80s is my friend on Facebook and, and sent me happy Father's Day notes. And I've gotten letters from their wives. Uh, a lot of my players back then were from the projects of St. Pete. They had a rough life and they're quality men now. It's a, I did that. I didn't do it by myself. They had moms and grandmas and dads and whatever. I was a part of that. I gave them a structure. I gave them an outlet sometimes. Sometimes I just gave them a voice uh, uh, to listen to or a shoulder to, to embrace. Um, that's more important than each jump shot they made. And, uh, and, and uh, don't get me wrong. I do think trying to win a bunch of games is great and trying to use, for example, high school players to use their experience in high school to get college scholarships. I'm all for it. I didn't care for that for my son. I knew that academically he'd be fine. And I knew that we, we were lucky enough to be able to put away money. I never told him you need to be a college scholarship player to make your dad and mom proud. I want you to find your people, whatever that means. And for him, it meant high level basketball. Those were his people. Everyone is different as a dad and a mom and what your kids want. Some kids don't really care to play. Very good players may not want to play after high school and that's fine. But our job is as coaches to get all of our players to, to where, what's the next step after high school, same as college. Where, where can we build our lives better? And how does basketball play a part in that? Uh, and if we can do that, uh, yeah, the language of basketball is important. What we teach external wise, super valuable because I have more success. It's not fun to fail at everything. We want them to be successful. But if we have that bigger picture in mind, I think, I think we'll build much better people. And to be honest with you, and just to finish and not to get too political, but we're at a place right now in the world where there's so much hate and so much intolerance. And it's used, it's used as a as a way to inspire people to not just do terrible things, but to vote for terrible people and to stand for terrible people. And it comes at the cost at a cost of, of our neighbors and friends. And in our sport, which is anything but a rich white man's sport, let's face it, thankfully, thank God. It is. Uh, I was once asked to get involved with youth soccer at the national level. Like, like the guy running the president in Virginia, I think he was, was recommended, he was recommended to call me. And he wanted me to help him recruit our people that play our sport into his sport. And I said, no. He really wanted to do it for football too because football was having concussion problems. And I said, no, because you need so much money to play your sport. Our sport doesn't require that. And so uh, we, we, I know this, my son's closest friends, almost all of them don't look like him. And he could care less. My daughter, same thing, she, she, she went with dance, another very diverse sport. And my son and daughter are forever changed for the better because of the, the pursuits they pursued beyond academics and dance and basketball. And there's a lot of people like them. Uh, and our world's better for that. And our job as coaches is to continue to try to build those kinds of minds, to be loving, tolerant people. They'll be better players, they'll be better people, and we'll have a better society as, as I grow old. Uh, if we have a, enough basketball players out there thinking big picture, uh, just to finish the thought, did you read yesterday, a woman, I think it was for Baylor, posted a video of their weight room in the bubble in Indianapolis, and then a video of the men's weight room. Did you see this? I saw it, yes. And then you <laughs> see Steph Curry and John Morant and all these great players are tweeting about it. Yes, they get it. That's what we need. I'm not, if you don't want to be political, that's your choice and fine. I'm not denigrating you for that. 
but enough people have stayed silent for enough time to still have the problems that we have. So uh, you're allowed to believe what you want, but we need people to stand up for everyone else that has no one standing up for them. And if we can use basketball as a tool to get our people, to, to get our players to believe in everyone, that everyone has a fair shot and deserves a fair chance. Uh, and to speak up about it and be active about it, like I know my kids are, I'm way more proud of them for that, my children, than I am for whatever success they have in sports and in, and in school. I'm, I'm thrilled that they're better people. And I had a tiny little role in that. My wife, I'm sure, had a bit of a bigger role, but I did my best. And I think my athletes would feel the same over the years that have played for me for 30 plus years now. And I promise you this, I've had NBA players call me on the phone when the first NBA player came out to say he was gay. Uh, Jason Collins, I think it was. I had a, a young man call me. Not, he was not young. He was, he was probably 30 at that point. He said, Coach, can I ask you about how I should feel about this? I said, well, sure. But can I ask you how you feel already? He's like, what do I care if he's gay? I don't, I don't see how that matters to me. What does it matter? Uh, if women may look at me. Men may look at me. How does that affect how I do anything, whether he's in my locker room or at the club? Why should I care about this? It doesn't bother me. I said, well, you've already answered the question you asked me for. Coach, well for? said. He just said I want stuff. He was for looking sure. for permission. And, uh, I can't thank you enough for sharing, not just the game with us, but obviously sharing your thoughts on society, politics, life in general, because ultimately that's what this is all about, is for all of us to be able to continue to strive to improve and get better. So thank you for taking the time with us. Appreciate you having me. Uh, best of luck and be safe, please. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things basketball immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter.